Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Welcome to this episode of Let's Talk. My name is Emmanuel Odeke, and today we'll be discussing salvation. So what is salvation? Can we say because Christ died on the cross, we are good to go? Mm-hmm. Well, you should know, friends, that salvation is the central theme of the whole Bible. In fact, the heart of the gospel message. You cannot even begin to call the gospel good news unless really you have salvation in view. And the word salvation can mean so many things. It can mean deliverance from sickness and disease, deliverance from physical harm and danger, deliverance from all sorts of misfortunes and problems. But when we think about the word salvation, at least in the biblical sense, we are thinking about deliverance from sin, its effects and its consequences. We are thinking about a situation of bondage to sin, a condition in which every man, woman, child is born in, and we are looking at God's act of delivering his people from sin, its consequences, and its effects. So it is sin, its effects, is uh, when one is pulled out of that, then mm-hmm. we are right to say that is mm-hmm. salvation. Well, in fact, we could take it a little further and say, usually there is, um, let me say, a, a, a shallow understanding of what salvation means. Many of us, when we think about salvation, we think about God saving us from our sins. But it's actually much bigger than that. In fact, the greatest problem we have in salvation is not even your sin and mine. It is the wrath of God. Remember, according to the scriptures, that God's wrath is against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. So when we talk about salvation, we're talking about God delivering you, the sinner, from the wrath of God that was going to come upon you on account of your sin. You are saved from God's wrath unto God. And when you think about it that way, then you begin to realize that actually your major problem is not even that you are a sinner, but that the Holy God is angry against your sinfulness and therefore must punish you. But instead of punishing you, he puts a way through which he delivers you from the very sins that have provoked his wrath. And instead of the punishment, you actually are forgiven. You are set free. You are given God's love instead of his wrath. So in other words, we'll be looking at justification in a bit. So friends, in, in a bit we'll be looking at the three major things here. That that's, This is what we'll be discussing and dwelling on for the entire uh, remaining minutes. We'll be looking at justification, sanctification, and then glorification. So those are the major three things we are going to bank our time on to, to, to bring sense out to us there. So now, what, what does one need to be sanctified after he's justified? Well, in simple terms, yes, but probably that is the most simplistic it might uh, probably help for us to understand, number one, when we talk about these terms, what are we talking about? 
But even before we go into terms and definitions and theological technicalities, it might help to go to the Bible and begin from the Bible. What does the Bible really say about salvation? And how do we see the scriptures address these three different terms that we intend to be discussing tonight? That is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, if we can look at the scriptures a bit, you will realize that the Bible, while presenting salvation as a whole to sinners, it actually presents it from different, three different perspectives or aspects. If you're not keen, sometimes you may not even realize it, but usually by looking at the tense that is being used in the passage, you can easily tell whether this aspect of salvation is uh, past or present or into the future. Let me, for instance, give you a couple of verses so that you can see how the Bible captures the concept of salvation even before we go into uh, defining these terms. If you look, for instance, at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the scriptures say that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, the key word in this passage is, you have been saved. For by grace, you have been saved. Speaking to something that is completed already, yet not just in the past, but a past perfect tense. In a sense that something has happened already in the past, but it has continuing effects in the present and the future. Now, you come to Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, you get the same kind of phrasing. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Again, we are reading here that this is a past tense usage of the concept of salvation, that as believers in Christ Jesus, we are already saved. But then, you come to Bible passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and what do we read? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We just read that we have been saved. But now the Apostle Paul is saying, we are being saved. And you may wonder, wait a minute, what is Paul talking about? I thought we were already saved, so how come now we are being saved? This is the aspect of the present usage of the concept of salvation. You will see the same in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But then again, looking at the future usage of our salvation, you will read Romans chapter 5, from verses 9 and 10. And the Apostle Paul says that much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We shall be saved. He continues. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You read Romans 13 verse 11, the same apostle Paul, he says that, And do this, knowing the time, and now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Our salvation is nearer, but we thought we already had it. Something that is near is something that is not very far away from you, 
but something that you don't possess already. You can see it, but you haven't yet received it or touched it. So on the one hand, the same apostle, by the way, Apostle Paul, tells us that we have been saved. And then later he tells us, we are being saved. And then finally he tells us, we shall be saved. I would not blame anyone who would read these Bible passages and feel confused. And maybe start to wonder, am I the one who is misunderstanding the scriptures? Or is it that the Apostle Paul is talking about salvation in a way that I do not understand? Now, what Emma just talked about, those three big words that we hope to discuss tonight, are the ones that basically capture the essence of what the scriptures are teaching concerning salvation. He has talked about the issue of salvation, for instance, which is a look into the past. When we talk about self-justification, we are talking about God delivering us from the penalty of sin, the guilt of sin that once held us cap captive. When we believe Jesus Christ and we trust him as our personal Savior and Lord, God declares us righteous. He looks at us as though we had not sinned. And because this is an event that happens the moment you trust Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, it is captured in a completed sense that when you look at your standing before God, at the time when you became a Christian, you can legitimately say, I was saved or I have been saved. When we think about justification, a number of things must come to mind. First and foremost, we must remember that this is the act of God in saving sinners. And that is very important because many of us tend to forget how we actually come to be saved. Today we have lots of religious groups and theologies that teach a salvation by works, that tell you the things you need to do in order to be made right with God. But you notice that the Bible passages we are reading are all captured in a passive tense. They all describe an action that has happened upon you. Not something you have done by yourself. We have been saved. Something has happened to us, has been done to us. So we need to understand that justification is God's work of grace in saving sinners. That justification is that act of God where he pardons undeserving sinners and accepts them as righteous in his sight on the basis of what Christ has done. When you read Romans chapter 5, for instance, verses 25, we read that he was delivered to death for our transgressions and he was raised from the dead for our justification. Meaning that when Jesus died on the cross, he took care of our sins and we were forgiven. But forgiveness is not enough. We had to be reconciled back to God. We had to be in right standing with God. And justification not only means that God's wrath and condemnation has been taken away, but that God in his mercy has now given you the righteousness of Christ. You gave Christ your sins. Christ has given you his righteousness. And on the basis of that righteousness, now God looks at you as though you have not sinned. And therefore, he declares you righteous. 
It is an event that happens on the day you confess Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. It comes from the express free grace of God, not by anything you and I has done. It becomes possible because of Christ's blood and death on Calvary's cross. It is received by faith in Christ Jesus and it is seen to have taken place by looking at the changed life that you receive when you have now become a Christian or a follower of Christ Jesus. Now you may be saying, but that's what all we who are Christians went through. So what makes that special? And why would we need sanctification and glorification? Are they relevant anymore? If we have been made right before God, our sins have been forgiven, condemnation has been taken away, why, why, what more do we need? But then you realize that the Bible doesn't just tell you about being right with God, but it also tells you about how to continue being right with God. When we began, we said justification is deliverance from the penalty of sin. God forgives you of all your sins and looks at you as a clean and pure slate. But now the question is, how do you continue after that? How should you then live knowing what Christ has done for you? So, in salvation, God doesn't just take away his wrath from you and give you Christ's righteousness. Something else happens. And that is the process that we are calling sanctification. Where God again, through his grace, begins to deliver you from the power of sin. Remember, in justification, you are set free from the penalty and the guilt of sin. In sanctification, you are set free or delivered from the power of sin. You may recognize that when we become Christians, we don't die and go to heaven right away. We still stay in a sinful world. The devil doesn't die because you became a Christian. He's still alive and well and will do whatever it takes to bring you down. And then perhaps the closest enemy every one of us has is our own fleshly desires that are corrupted. And so the question is, how do we live Christ-honoring lives once we have been justified before God? How do we move on? In this process of sanctification, which by the way means to set apart or to make holy, God by his spirit begins working in you constantly, continuously to grow you and to conform you into the image of Christ that you begin to become more and more like Jesus. He gives you the power to overcome sin and temptation. In fact, when you read Titus chapter 2 verse 11, we read that for the grace of God which brings salvation to all mankind has appeared. It teaches us to say no to all unrighteousness or ungodliness and to live godly and sober lives especially as we wait for the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That you receive God's grace that empowers you and enables you to say no to sin. You begin to overcome temptations and addictions and weaknesses that normally on your own you would never have overcome. You begin to get grounded in God's truth to understand His holiness and how worthy He is of your worship and as you put to death the desires and the, the, the sins of the flesh, 
you grow into holiness, into consecration towards God and godly things. Now please note that while justification happens in an instant, the moment Jesus Christ becomes your Savior and Lord, sanctification is not an event. It is a lifelong process that you as a believer must go through as you are perfected from one level to another. In this process, renewal and transformation take place. God slowly but surely is making you into the likeness of His Son. In fact, when you read Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says that, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with the ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is Spirit. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 10, Paul says that sanctification is where we are being renewed after the image of our Creator. That sanctification is that process where you begin to yearn for more of God and things that pertain to godliness. Where you begin to shun things that are ungodly and things that would offend God's honor and holiness. And both that growth, that spiritual growth, from the level of a young believer, a young convert, to a place where you are becoming a disciple, is what we are describing as that process of being set apart, being made holy. Now, listen to this that I believe is very interesting. While we are saying that justification is the express work of God in serving sinners, sanctification, of course, is also the work of God, because remember, it is part of the process of salvation, and salvation is all of God. But now here comes the twist, that in sanctification, God is no longer just doing things unto us like he did in justification, but now he is working with us to shape us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. And that's why you will see the New Testament especially highlighting the believer's responsibility in sanctification. We do not wake up and magically find ourselves to be holy. We are invited into a spiritual warfare against Satan, against the flesh, against the foreign and sinful world. We are commanded to be holy. We are called to be perfect. We are commanded to present the faculties of our bodies as servants of righteousness unto holiness. And what that really means is that in the process of sanctification, we are not passive participants. We are active people who are responding to the call of the Spirit, to the grace of God at work in our lives, and therefore are taking responsibility for what we do, and desiring that we do those things that are unto godliness and perfection. If you just take the side of God's grace, you may very easily take God for granted than the whole salvation process. And today we are seeing a number of believers who are actually doing that, who are saying we've been saved by grace, our sins yesterday, today, and forever have been forgiven, now we can enjoy our lives in whichever way we want. We can sin after all, we know the grace is sufficient. And you see, my friends, once you begin to think that way, maybe you should even begin to doubt whether you were justified in the first place. Because you see, the grace of God that delivers you from the penalty of sin also gives you the power to begin to overcome sin, to modify sin, and have an awakening 
into the practice of true godliness and holiness as God enables you. If at all, grace leads you into godliness. It is not a license to sinfulness. And when you continue reading, for instance, Titus chapter 2, you will read that Jesus Christ has purified us and has set us apart to be a people ready for good works. People who serve well. People who do good works, not so that we can be saved, but arising out of our gratefulness that we have been already saved. If you see a believer who takes the grace of God for granted, he has not only misunderstood that grace, but maybe there is evidence that he has not even been transformed by the power of the gospel. And you may even wonder whether he has been put right with God in what we call justification before. Sanctification brings out the fruit of the Holy Spirit. People begin to see a changed person. You begin to speak like the Apostle Paul, where he says that it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I died with Christ. I rose with him. In Galatians 2, 2 uh, verse 20, having said that it's no longer him who lives, but Christ in him, he goes further and he says, that the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Now I live for God. Now I live unto godliness. Later in 2 Corinthians 5.15, the Apostle Paul will remind us that he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died and rose again. That when you have been justified, the work of God's grace in your life not only takes away God's condemnation and wrath, but it begins to move you towards a holy cry, a holy longing, a holy yearning, that you now want to be like Christ. You want to do the things that would honor Christ, and therefore you become a new creation. The New Testament is full of imperatives, on the do's and don'ts of Christian living. This is not because we are saved by works, but what the New Testament writers are saying, that God has not only saved you by his grace, but he has prepared good works that you may walk in as you obey him, but as you also bring honor and glory to him. So the Bible will call us to holiness, the Bible will call us to righteousness, the Bible will remind us that we are to no longer live the way we used to live, lives that we are indulged in the dictates of the flesh, but we are now to walk in the purity and holiness. The process of sanctification sets believers apart from the ways and the indulgences of the world to become a people that live for the honor and for the glory of God. By their words and by their lifestyle, you begin to see them and you realize these people have changed. Once lost but now found. Once alienated from God but now reconciled to God. Once drunkards and rapists but now humble men and women who have become selfless, sacrificial servants of God. Their, their external lifestyle begins to communicate the inner transformation that has happened to them. And that is the process of sanctification. It goes on for as long as you live as a Christian. There is never a day when you really become 100% perfect while you are here on earth. You continue in spiritual warfare. It's an ongoing struggle against the world, 
the flesh and the devil. And sometimes there will be setbacks and disappointments. Sometimes you will even fail. But when you have failed, you will hear passages like say, like First John chapter 2. Where the Apostle John says, My dear children, I write to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who stands before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who has become the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but even for the whole world. But John not only reminds us that as believers we are not yet fully perfect and therefore are prone to temptation and fall into sin, but he reminds us that there is Jesus who gives us another opportunity, who empowers us to live Christ-honoring lives no matter how tough the spiritual warfare has become. You know, I meet a number of people, for instance, who tell me, they say, you see, I was a Christian, I lived for God for 13 years or whatever, but then I have fallen in this kind of sin, so do you think God will ever forgive me, or is it too late for me? And usually what I tell them is that the fact that they recognize that they have sinned itself is an indicator that the Spirit of God is at work in them. And the Spirit of God is the one who is leading them through the process of sanctification. The fact that they are aware of their sinfulness and it bothers them that they have failed itself is a process of sanctification. So rather than lose hope, you should cast yourself back at the feet of the one who saved you from the beginning and you will find that he will not let you down. That not only will he forgive you, but the scriptures tell us that if we confess our sins, he is able to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, having said that, we've looked at justification as a process, rather as an event in which we are made right with God, condemnation is taken away, Christ's righteousness is given to us, and now God looks at us as though we had never sinned. He delivers us from sin's guilt and penalty, and we are set free and declared not guilty. We have looked at the process of sanctification, where God continues to work in us, to set us apart by His Spirit, but even more so, to give us the grace to enable us to walk Christ-honoring lives, to stand firm against sin, against its desires, against its power, and to live victorious lives that Christ has bought for us in his death and resurrection. Now, uh, when we come from the break, it will be important for us to look at the third aspect of salvation, one of glorification. If we have been justified by God, and we are now totally free, we, have, we are being sanctified daily, and being conformed into the image of Christ, what next? When does it stop? When do we come to that place where we can now say that the God who justified us, who is sanctifying us, will one day glorify us? And while we wait for that glorification, what do we do? How do we live our lives? Can we be sure that we are saved? Or should we continue to look into the future until when we finally receive that salvation? As a matter of fact, we have a number of churches that do teach that. That you can never be sure of your salvation until you finally die and stand before God. 
So they keep telling you, work harder, remain godly, make sure you do all the good things that please God. And maybe, who knows, one day when you die, you might find God has actually saved you. And friends, that's not the teaching of scripture, as we shall be looking at this whole process, especially climaxing with uh, glorification. Now you want to, you don't want to miss that bit. You don't want to miss that bit. Today you might want to pick your English notes a little bit and make sure you, you try and revise tenses. Now you might notice there is past tense and then present continuous tense and then there is future tense. So justification is past tense and then sanctification is present continuous. And then when we return from the break, we'll be definitely looking at the future tense, which is glorification. You want to pick your notes of uh, uh, maybe senior one, senior two, and try to look at the grammar there, which tense exactly are we in. But as per now, we should be in uh, the, the present continuous tense. We are now swinging to glorification. So... Uh, after, after Reverend Rogers has dealt with glorification, I'll, I'll ask him to give us the simplest way we can understand these three things. They are very heavy words. <laughs> they are very heavy. Uh, sanctification and then uh, justification and then glorification. Quite heavy. But uh, he, will, he will give us the simplest way to understand some of these things. So Reverend Rogers, what, what, what happens when glorification reaches? Ah, glorification is the final part that I, I believe every believer should long for. Because you see, once you become a Christian, one of the things you begin to realize is that this world is not home. That this world is awfully sinful and broken. You therefore develop a yearning for the time when we shall go home. Leave this world where everything is broken down and messed up. To, in, to a place where there will be no more crying, no more sorrow, no more hunger, as we read in the book of Revelation. And that is the process that we call glorification, when finally, when at last, we are delivered from the presence of sin. In other words, simply put, the process of glorification comes into effect when as a believer you die. This is the final step in the application of redemption. It happens when Christ will return and raise those, uh, raise us from the dead and then cause us to be seated with him in heavenly jubilation. It is the hope and the longing of all believers. And in fact, as you look at the New Testament, it seems to be set in a framework of these processes of salvation. We have been saved, praise the Lord. We are being saved, hang in there and persevere. We will be saved, keep your eye on the goal, because it won't be long, and Christ our Lord will come. A couple passages where the Apostle Paul reminds us of this important process. You read Romans chapter 8, for instance, verses 30, and we are told that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Basically, the process of salvation doesn't even begin the moment you get saved. It began way back, even before you were created. That long in eternity past, 
God committed himself through his son to save a people for himself. And if you are a Christian, praise the Lord that you are one of those that God committed to save. But you see, the Lord did not only commit himself to save you, but Paul is telling us that those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And justification is not the end. If he justified you, he will glorify you. So the process does not end until you are finally glorified. Listen to how the Apostle Paul captures it when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 3 verses 20 to 21. He says that, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, mark that word, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things unto himself. You can see that Paul has shifted gears from have been saved to being saved and now he is to will be saved. That Christ will transform us and as believers we wait with an unexpected expectation of that day. When we can be transformed from our mortal bodies to resurrected bodies that will never die. And at that time, we will have been set free completely and for all eternity from the presence and influence of sin. Dr. Luke himself in the Gospels captured this aspect of salvation. In chapter 21 verses 28, he says that now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. What redemption is he talking about if we are already saved now? Luke is talking to that future aspect of the final phase of your salvation when you will be glorified, when you will be redeemed not from your sin, but from everything that is not of God. In Romans 8.23, Paul says, that and not only they, but we also who have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Now, if you are waiting for something, it means that that something has not yet happened. And what Paul is basically saying is that even though we are Christians, we have been saved, we are being saved in the process of sanctification. There is much more to come. We will fully, we will finally be saved when we have been delivered from the presence of sin. We will be taken out of this broken and sinful world into the perfection of God's paradise in the new Jerusalem as we find it typically captured in the book of Revelation. And in that place, we are told that, we, that the Lamb of God who, who, who sits upon the throne we will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The groanings of this world, the sicknesses of this world, the hatred and the enmity that this world throws up, up uh, unto us, all that will be in our past, all that will be no more. We will have new resurrected bodies that cannot sin, that don't have to be under the dominion and power of sin. And it is in that state that we can safely say we have now fully and finally been saved. Now, I get to speak with some people again who have a problem with the assurance of salvation. 
They are Christians. They have trusted Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord. But somehow they still think maybe they may miss out on heaven. And they usually come and tell me, you see, I have been in prayer and I have been fasting because you never know any time anyone would die. In other words, what they are saying is that how we end our lives is dependent upon what we do or we don't do. So I usually ask them, if you dropped dead right now, would you go to heaven? And they are not so sure. I ask them, did you pray this morning? Did you ask for forgiveness of each and every sin? Even the one right now you just thought about 30 seconds ago. And of course the answer is no. And I'm saying, look, that's not what the New Testament teaches. That you are to hold and guard your salvation as, as though it all depends on you. None of us knows the day when we will die. And we don't get any warning that in the next five minutes you are going to die. Therefore begin praying and ask God to forgive you each and every sin. As a matter of fact, at the moment of death, each and every one of us is, is a sinner. The difference between us and the people who have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord is that we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That God no longer holds us guilty because Christ's death and resurrection has satisfied the wrath of God. That God, by His grace, has been doing a work through His Spirit of sanctifying us and making us holy. And when God who knows our time on earth, He is the one who decides when we die and when we leave this world, when He determines that our time has come to die, He finally cleanses us and delivers us out of a world of sin and pollution and corruption. So the process of salvation is dependent on God fully from beginning to end. It is not what you and I do in between that causes us to be sure that we are going to heaven or not. In fact, as a matter of fact, when I hear people praying that they want to go to heaven, one of the things I think about is these guys do not know whom they have believed. Because you see, when we become Christians, we are not just put in right standing with God. There is another word that we usually use there in church or in theology that we call the word adoption. That we become children of God. In John chapter 1 verse 12 we are told that those who believed in him, even those who received him, he gave them the right to become sons of God. In Galatians chapter 4 we are told that therefore we are no longer slaves but sons and therefore heirs of the heavenly inheritance. Once you become a Christian or a follower of Jesus, you are now a child of God. And because God is in heaven, heaven automatically becomes your home. It's no longer something you need to pray about that pray for me that I go to heaven. No. If you, you have a father and your father lives somewhere, let's say in Kawempe, when it is evening, where do you go? You go home. Do you need to call home and ask your father permission whether you should come or not? No, that's where you belong. So right from the beginning, you are in God's books and records by the work that God has done in your life. Not necessarily what you are doing. Now, please, do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that living a Christ-honoring life is useless or doesn't count. But what I am saying is that believers live godly lives because they have already been saved. They've already been justified. 
they are being enabled as a matter of fact by the spirit of God who is already at work in them to live Christ honoring lives. They don't do good things to be saved. They do good things because they have been saved. We will go to heaven, we who have trusted Jesus as our personal Savior and Lord, not because of our accomplishments of what or what we have done, but because he who began the good work in us has finally brought it to completion. Salvation is of God from beginning to end. He delivers you from the penalty of sin. He delivers you from the power and the dominion of sin. And when your time on earth is done, he delivers you from the presence of sin to live with him in his holiness, in his purity, in a place where there is no corruption or where there is no defilement whatsoever. It's all of God. And because it's all of God, God cannot fail. What he begins, he finishes. And therefore, if you are a Christian, I want you to rest assured that you will surely be in heaven because it's not about what you have done. It's about the finished work of Jesus on the cross that has continuing salvific effects in your life for as long as you live. But secondly, if you are a Christian and you are living in sin, I should also quickly caution you that you cannot take the grace of God for granted. And if you are indulging without any conviction by the Spirit of God, it's an indication that you need to be justified, that you need to get saved because as if you were a Christian, you would be longing for God's holiness and God's glory. And therefore you would not be living for the selfish desires of your own life. The Christian life and the grace that God imparts in us as believers draws us to upright living, to holiness, to purity, to godliness, to perfection, and conforms us gradually into the image of Christ. Should we live Christ-honoring lives as believers? Of course, yes. That's what shows evidence that indeed our lives have been changed and are being changed by the work of God's grace. If you find someone who unrepentantly continues to war in sin, what does just that just tell you? They are still in the bondage of sin and they need to be delivered from it. Does that mean that if we try hard and put in more effort, God is more pleased with us than he was before? No. God's love doesn't change because of what you have done. Remember, you do not contribute to the process of salvation. God does it all from beginning to end. And at the same time, the same God gives you the grace to enable you to live the kind of life that honors him. When all is said and done, Together we will remember that nothing we bring before the cross of Christ except our sins and in faith that we may be forgiven and accepted of God. And when we finally reach that point of glorification, there will only be one song to sing. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Not I have done, not I have contributed in any way, but to God be the glory, great things he has done. So how should we conclude what we've talked about tonight? We should be reminded, remember, that God does not do salvation in different phases. The whole process of salvation is one and the same. The three processes of justification, sanctification, and glorification are not divided. They are all intertwined together. 
They all happen simultaneously. But they are all of God. They are all an act of God's grace. They are fully and truly dependent on God. And therefore God is worthy of praise and honor in everything we do and no matter where you look. If you have not yet known Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, I would like to encourage you to consider him because not only will you set you right before God, but he will give you his righteousness that will enable you to live the kind of life that honors him as you eagerly await his great and glorious appearance to deliver us out of this sinful world, to glorify us as a matter of fact, to take us away from the presence of sin. Salvation is the work of God where the sinner is, is redeemed from his sin and is increasingly set free from the dominion of sin and prepared for the final phase where he will be perfected in the image of God's Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you very much, Reverend Rogers, for just... You know, every time Reverend Rogers comes here, uh, one hour seems like um, 20 minutes. Huh? But uh, nevertheless, we hope for the future things will get better. We go to glorification, and uh, that marks the end of it for today. We thank you so much for keeping it on Church of Uganda Family TV, where we enrich lives. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.